I'm on. Yes, yes. Good morning. You know, that worship package felt awful short on the front end, didn't it? Well, we're actually going to move the speaking a little bit earlier. We're actually going to do a little bit more worship on the back end of our service in the weeks to come to kind of capture the most people, to have the most energy we can, to enjoy the experience as much as we can together. So that's what we're going to be doing. Say it with me. I love my church. No, one more time. I love my church. There we go. Very good. Very good. And the reason why I love my church is because you are gospel living, generously giving, sacrificially serving, committed community group of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, love one another, and want the people around you to know and experience his love too. Amen? That's what it means to be the church. And it's an exciting thing to be the church. And you know, it never ceases to amaze me um, that actually sometimes when I'm speaking on a Sunday, people actually listen. It, 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 well, it, it does. It surprises me. And, and the cool part about that surprise is uh, back on the 31st, I spoke about committed community. And as a result of that, we had to put together a pretty quick 101 class, which is our membership class. We weren't scheduled to have one until after Easter, but we ended up having it yesterday morning. And we had 11 people show up because they wanted to get into membership. Yes, yes. And as a result of that class, out of the 11, 10 of them are ready to step into membership. Three did earlier, and we have six more coming in today at the end of this service. And everybody said? Hallelujah, yeah. People are getting committed. They're getting connected. They want to be a part of this wonderful body, a part of who we are. And then last week, I spoke about sacrificially serving. And, and uh, at the end, I kind of gave this plea for children's church, which happens in this hour right now. A bunch of kids are down in the uh, gymnasium area. And uh, as a result of that ask, uh, 10 individuals said, hey, we're willing to help out in the children's church ministry, and we want to see it be successful. So it's like, praise God. Praise God. So what's happening is people are jumping in. People are getting committed. This is exciting stuff. Yeah, again, it just surprises me. Y'all, listen. This is good. I want to challenge you today. About halfway through the message, you're going to want to go, la, 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 la. Because I'm going to be giving to you this morning some truth from God's word that is not what I would call 100-level teaching on generosity. We're going to kind of cut our teeth on 400-level generosity today. So do me a favor. Don't check out. Don't say, oh, my gosh. Just say, I'm willing to listen. My heart is open. Speak to me, Lord. Deal? Let's go there. Let's try that together. All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning as we talk about generous living together. In other words, we cannot outgive God. And I want to encourage you to bring a Bible with you because the beauty of having a written copy of the Word of God like this is you can touch it and you can you know, bend it, you can highlight, you can write in it, you can actually see context. You see, when I give you the digital copy up here, I'm not giving you a lot of context. But if you can see it in light of where it sits in the rest of Scripture, context gives meaning. And so I would like for you to have that privilege of owning your own copy and kind of working it, marking it up, and making it your own. I'll continue to give you the digital copy, by the way. That's okay. But I really want to encourage you to bring your Bibles and mark them up along the way. So we're today going to use as our base text uh, for this message on generous giving. And we're going to use Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Permit me to read it. Now, the full number of those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were wonderfully saved 
the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and then brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as they had need. What a beautiful section. What a beautiful teaching about the early church. Uh, This is uh, only a few uh, weeks, possibly months, removed from the death Uh, a burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the early Jerusalem church, and it's still in its infancy, but it was growing rapidly at this point. And I love how it talks about the incredible unity this early church had. It said, now the full number of those who believed were of what? They were of one and one. That's right, man. There was incredible unity in this early church. And in context, just prior to these words, we discovered that persecution had come upon this young church, which means those who were kind of around the edges but not really connected or committed would back away because who wants suffering? Who wants pain? But those who were committed, those who were connected, what happens with persecution is it often deepens your connection. It often makes you more unified. And so that's what was going on here. So they had this great unity of heart, this unity of soul, and there was also incredible generosity that was going on in the context of this church. It says that uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was actually their own, but they had everything in, what's the word, in this portion of Scripture uh, has often been referred to as Christian communism. I feel the the communism. He said the C word. Yeah, communism. Now, the reality is this has nothing to do with that ideology uh, about a government that removes from people the right to own things, takes all that responsibility on itself, and then pushes out this to so-and-so balance out so that there's no socioeconomic difference between people. That, that's a government ideology that is true in some countries today, but that has nothing to do with this. You see, this is a forced redistribution of wealth. This is a free giving of God's resources to meet the needs of other people. And so that's what this is. It is a Christian form of communism. It is people actually caring enough about somebody else that they're willing to sell what they have to meet somebody else's need. That's a beautiful thing. It wasn't forced. It was willing. Now, I'm also happy to tell you, and many of you will be relieved, that this is not prescriptive of the church today. By that I mean this, this is not how we are meant to practice church today in our context. If it were, then what I would do is have Robin Lower, uh, she's a local realtor, I would have you all see her, and she will give you signs to put on your front lawns, and you will sell your houses, and you will sell your lands, and then what you will do is you will bring them here, and you will put them at my feet. Not that I'm an apostle or anything, but, but the idea is if we practice this prescriptively, that's what it would look like. That's not what it's saying. So while it's not prescriptive for today, the reality is this. It is descriptive of what happens to a people of God who have experienced the great grace of God on their lives. The result of grace is always gratitude 
in incredible generosity. And that's exactly what we see playing out here in this early church. One person put it like this, and I think it's well said. Where you see the lightning of God's grace strike, where you see the lightning of God's grace strike and save people, rescue them from the wrath of God, give to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they are declared uh, just based upon faith alone in Christ alone. Where you see the grace of God the lightning of grace of God strike, you will always discover that then there is this thunder of generosity. And so we see that. It says this, And with great power the apostles were teaching testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon all. And notice, And there was not a needy person among them. So where the lightning of God's grace strikes, there is always the thunder of generosity. And that's not just true here in Acts chapter 4, but actually you'll discover that's a pretty consistent reality throughout the rest of the book of Acts. In fact, let me just give you a, a few more incidents. You can look them up and get, gain more context on these. But in Acts chapter 2, we have the initiation of the early church, the descent of the Holy Spirit, uh, the beginning of the church. So Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of pilgrims have filled Jerusalem. And Peter stands up under the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit and proclaims Jesus. Him crucified, buried, and risen. And he's now ascended to the right hand of the throne on high. And Peter is preaching. And it says this in verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Here comes the lightning. Here comes the lightning. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow! Here comes the stroke of lightning. The grace of God hits this group of people, and here comes the thunder. Verse 44, And all who, were, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to all who had need. Flash of lightning. The grace of God. The result is the thunder of gratitude and the thunder of generosity in the lives of the people of God. True in Acts chapter 2, true in Acts chapter 4. And then you flip over to Acts chapter 16. We now have the apostle Paul as he's entering into the city of Philippi. And as he's entering into the city, he's asking God, you know, direct me to those people who are ready to receive this message of the gospel. And so when he ends up there in Philippi, it says this, that on the Sabbath day, this is Acts chapter 16 and verse 13, on the Sabbath day, Saturday, they went outside of the gate of the city to the riverside, where we supposed was going to be a place of prayer. And they sat down and they spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the town or the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple. She was a wealthy woman who was seeking to be a worshiper of God. And it says this, And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Here comes the lightning. The lightning of the grace of God is about to strike Lydia. And after that, she was baptized along with her household, and now comes the resounding thunder of generosity. And it says, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, what you need to understand is that Lydia's house in the city of Philippi became the location of the local church. She turned over her house, her possessions, basically to Paul to do the ministry in that city. 
where you see the lightning of God's grace strike, there is always the thunder of generosity that results. Another episode, a little further along in the book of Acts, chapter 16, uh, Paul and the Philippian jailer. I will not read all the additional context. You can do that on your own. But when you get to verse 30 of Acts chapter 16, it says this, And then he, the Philippian jailer, brought them, Paul and Silas, out. And he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Here comes the lightning. The lightning of the grace of God. And it says, he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Now comes the thunder, the thunder of generosity. It says, he took them that same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he brought them into his house, and he set food before them. So what I want you to see is everywhere the grace of God falls and strikes on a person or a people, the result is always generosity. If you've experienced great grace, if you have been forgiven that which you could never earn or deserve, the result of that in a life is to give your life for the needs of others. That is such a consistent theme in the book of Acts and in the Bible as a whole that where you fail to find thunder, you need to doubt that there was ever light. In fact, the Apostle James, or James, said that in James chapter 2. Listen to what James says. James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, if you will? What good is it if somebody says, I've been struck by lightning, but there's no thunder in his life? He goes on to say this. Can such a faith save him? Because if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without actually giving the things that are necessary for the body, what good is that? So also, a faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So this idea that the the lightning of God's grace striking a heart, striking a people of God, and the result being thunder is replete in the New Testament. And where that lacks, there needs to be the question, did you even get struck by lightning? Did you even experience the grace of God? Many years ago, a wonderful man of God by the name of Adrian Rogers, maybe you know that name, maybe not, he used to preach at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. He had a radio program called Love Worth Finding. I used to listen to him all the time. I loved Adrian. He's now with the Lord. But he has this statement. He goes, if your faith has not reached your wallet, it's doubtful it ever reached your heart. That's biblical. That's biblical. And so that's the question here. And so the reality is this. uh, If we have had a true experience of relationship with God, the forgiveness of our sins by faith in Jesus Christ, the result in our lives should be that we are going to be those who will be generous, those who will freely seek to meet the needs of others. So in the next few minutes, what I want to do is this. I would like to take some further teaching of God's word to hopefully kind of uh, broaden this this generous uh, desire to, to want to please the Lord by meeting other people's needs. I want to broaden it, and I want to deepen it, and I want to mature it in the next few minutes. What I'd like to do 
is I would like to give you three other biblical truths around this concept of generosity. And, and these truths are, are equally true, but my hope is that one of these truths will be something that you might be able to hang your heart on that will motivate you to be even more generous in your heart and in your life. So with that in mind, number one out of these three additional truths to try and deepen and broaden and mature our generosity, number one is this. God owns it all. We are just delivery people. Now, somebody complained that that wasn't a UPS truck. I'm sorry. I could have put UPS, the United States Postal Service, or I could have put FedEx. I put FedEx, so I got a FedEx truck up there. So here we have a FedEx truck. Now, let's say you have a package, and uh, the goal of this package of yours is to go to the address you've kind of addressed on it, and so what you want to do is get this parcel to its destination. So you pick up the telephone and you call FedEx. Hello, FedEx. I have a package that I'd like to have delivered. No problem. We'll send a driver by. So let's say the driver kind of pulls up by your house and he whips open the door, jumps out, runs up and pushes the front doorbell. Hello, FedEx. I understand you have a parcel. Yes, here it is. And you put it in his hands and he receives it and he says, thank you. You shut the door, he runs back to his truck, he jumps into his truck, shuts the door, and drives off. What's your expectation? That he's going to take it to where it's addressed for, right? Okay. What if you discovered that rather than actually taking it back to the depot, that he actually took it home? And uh, he ripped it open, and he took out what was inside, and he now owns it. Well, after a while, the person who was expecting the package will say, hey, what, did you ever send that? Yeah, I sent that. So you'll call FedEx. Hello, FedEx. There's been a problem here. Uh, we discovered that the package we sent didn't seem to end up at its destination. And they'll say, well, check into it. So, so what would you say to the FedEx guy when you had a chance to kind of address him about this complaint? What would you say to him? Dude, what are you doing? What's up with this? And you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, I stood at your door. You put the package in my hands. I said thank you. I thought you gave it to me. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I gave that to you to give to somebody else because that's your job. Right? That's what we would say. Not everything that winds up in our hands is whether it be a gift, an inheritance, whether it even be a hard-earned paycheck. Not everything that winds up in our hands is ours. And you're thinking, but wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor Bill. You, you, <laughs> you don't understand. I get up every day really early at the crack of dawn. I get showered. I get changed. I grab something on the way out. I, I get into my car. I have a nasty commute. I work all day. And then I have to take this ride home all night. And sometimes I hit terrible snarls. And I finally get home. And I'm exhausted. And you're telling me that all that hard work I went to and what I get in my paycheck is not mine? I know what you're thinking. Your darn tootin' it's mine. In fact, if you could right now, if you had the guts, you would step up and you would say, mine, 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 m
rats with yeah, wings. The bloke's been looking for his boy Nemo. Nemo? He, he was taken off the reef by divers, and this guy. They're taking it, Harvey! Fight, fight! Hey, hey, say that again. You just said something about Nemo. What was it? Fight, Mine? No. It's not yours. Let me prove it. The Bible says that we do not own anything, but actually it all belongs to God. Deuteronomy 10.14 says this, To the Lord your God belong the heavens and even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 23 says this, The land is mine, you are but aliens and my tenants, says the Lord. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Job 41, 11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me says the Lord. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I own every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and it is all mine. Haggai 2, verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord God Almighty. You will not find a verse of Scripture anywhere in the Bible where God relinquishes ownership over everything. You will not find a verse in the Bible that says God died and left you in charge. It just isn't there. The reality is this, God owns everything everything. It all belongs to him. Even our very lives, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our own, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, you have been bought with a price. So even your own life isn't yours. God calls us merely managers. God calls us stewards over his resources. God, if you will, calls us nothing more than his delivery people. His goal is that we would be the conduits through which God would pass his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and the resources that needy people require. That is to be passed through our lives to the lives of other people. You know, imagine, if you would, that FedEx, uh, they forgot their job. They forgot that it wasn't there. So everybody at FedEx decided, this is my truck now. I'm just going to run around and pick up packages everywhere I go. I'm going to shove them in the back, and it's all mine. What would that do to the postal service, the delivery system? Everything would grind to a halt. People wouldn't get what they need, and people would be in up in arms. Sounds like the day and age we live in, doesn't it? People are in revolt. They're up in arms because many basic needs go unmet. There is a man 
by the name of Randy Elkhorn. How many of you are familiar with the name uh, Randy Elkhorn? Wonderful man of God, wonderful servant of Jesus Christ. He wrote a, a wonderful book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Highly recommend it. He wrote The Treasure Principle. He wrote a wonderful thick tome on heaven. What will it be like? He just finished writing a book on happiness. He uh, has a ministry called Eternal Perspectives Ministry. Wonderful man of God, incredible insights. He says this, God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. I'm going to pause right there. Because I think in many of our minds, the issue of needs and wants often are befuddled. And it's amazing how good we are with mental gymnastics to actually make a, a, a want a need. Oh, I need this. Do you? All right, well, let me just give you a, a simple understanding of what needs are. This actually comes from a man by the name of Dave Ramsey from his uh, course called Financial Peace University. He has this thing that he refers to as the four walls, the four walls of your house which give you basic shelter and security. These four walls are what he would refer to as needs, and I think they're good. So the first one obviously represents what? Yeah, we need food, don't we? How many need food? Yes, okay, that oxygen's free, food isn't. So we all need food. But that doesn't mean we go out to the restaurant every day. Okay. Uh, the next one represents what? Shelter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shelter. That is a requirement that we all have, especially when it's 12 degrees outside. You know, I was, I was laying in bed last night, cold. I have a heat pump. Do you know heat pumps don't pump heat? They work in the summertime pumping heat out of your house, but they don't work in the wintertime pumping heat into your house. I've discovered that, especially when it's 12 degrees outside. So I'm lying in bed cold, and all I can think about are the homeless in our community. Hundreds of people who do not have adequate shelter against elements like this. And I'm sitting there thinking, thank you, Jesus, that I get a chance to at least be cold in my own bed under a roof. But many people don't have those basic needs met. So, so yes, the issue of, of a dwelling is something that, that we require. But let me just say, the dwelling doesn't have to be a mansion to cover you from the cold. It can be much more humble than that to cover you from the cold. So when we talk needs, we all need food, we all need shelter. But we also need transportation in this day and age, don't we? If we're going to have a job, we have to have a way to get to that job. So transportation, whether it's a vehicle or, or the bus or, or the train, whatever it is, we need transportation. And the last thing is what? Yeah, and you don't have to buy them at Fifth Avenue. That's just the truth. So these are what are called necessities. These are things that all people require in order to have simple security and shelter. With that in mind. Randy Alcorn continues. He says, God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It is not so that we can find more ways to indulge ourselves or spoil our children. Now, I'm reading Randy Alcorn's words here because I don't want you mad at me, okay? It's not so that we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision in our lives. It is so we can give and give generously to the needs of others. He uses this verse from the Apostle Paul found in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he wraps some thoughts around it. And Paul said this, As a matter of fairness, 
your abundance at the present time should supply their need. Now he's referring to the Jews who are in Jerusalem who are under a time of, of great famine, who are in dire need. And he's speaking to, to the Gentile churches how you need to supply their need. They have hurt. They have, they have need. So at the present time, you should supply their need because you have plenty. And when you don't have plenty, their abundance at that time will supply your need that there may be, what's the word? Now, you know, our tendency is to say, man, this sounds like communism. Maybe socialism. It's certainly not Americanism. Let me just say this. This is not Russia. This is not Europe. This is certainly not the United States of America. What this is, is the kingdom of God he's talking about. This is the highest reality that the child of God lives in. It's called the kingdom of God. We'll talk in just a few moments about how that's actually our true residency. So he's challenging us to understand that God owns it all. We are simply delivery people. Now he goes on to finish up this way. And so Randy Alcorn says this. Hi, Randy. He said this. This is the biblical pattern for giving. See a need, give to meet it. We are to give according to our ability, which means living on less than God has entrusted to us. We need to understand something within the economy of God. The way that God chooses to work with his people is that when God gives us more, we get a raise. Somebody dies and leaves us an inheritance. What God puts in our hands is not for us to keep, to raise our standard of living. What God puts in our hands is designed to be given and raise the standard of our giving. That's why God gives us this stuff. Woohoo! Now I can get a better car, a bigger house. Now I can go out to the restaurant three times a week. Now I can have nicer clothes. Some of you think I need nicer clothes. I warned you, right now you're about to go. La, 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 la. Don't do it. Don't do it. This is kingdom living we're talking about. This is the challenge today placed upon us. We'll clarify more of it as we move along. But he said this, if he, God, has entrusted us with a great deal, as he has most of us, it means living on far less so we can deliver the excess to the needy. That way we will not have too little Oh, I'm sorry, that way they will not have too little and we will not have too much, which is exactly what God... Did you know that? You guys even look more stone-faced than the first service did. Randy Elkhorn, I love the man because he has eternity's values in view. He knows that the kingdom to come is going to far exceed anything we could have here. And it's as we sacrifice here that it will influence that kingdom living that we'll enjoy there as well. Talk more about that. So this is not communism. This is not living in Europe under socialism. This is not living in the United States. This is living in the economy of God. Say it with me. God owns it all. We are just. That's right. That's right. Secondly, to add to this strike of the lightning of God's grace in our lives and the, the natural thunder of generosity that comes out, may God only grow the thunder. Number two, giving to the needs of others is the key to a joyful life. 
giving to the needs of others is, a key, is the key to a joyful life. You know, we are living in a time today where there are very wealthy people, uh, very popular people, and you know what they're discovering in all of their wealth and all their popularity and all the awards and all the good stuff that they get? It's empty. The more you get does not make a life. Many people are discovering the more you give is what makes a life. Just to show you a few folks who have more recently written on this topic out of their own despair in being wealthy and rich and popular. Uh, this is uh, Stephen King. Maybe you have read some of his books or seen some of his movies. They're usually all murder, slasher type stuff. Uh, Stephen King, very popular writer, uh, has made a ton of money. Uh, the guy, by the way, lives in Bangor, Maine. Uh, but Stephen King has, has had a near-death experience. He almost got killed one day, and then he was laying in a ditch with his bone of his leg sticking out through his jeans, and he was laying there thinking, I don't think anybody takes MasterCard. And he realized that money wasn't going to help him. After he finally got picked up out of the ditch, he realized my money can help others. And so that was his experience. Down here we have who? Warren... Buffett, yes, Warren Buffett, Mr. Billionaire himself. Up here is Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, Microsoft extraordinaire, and down here is Angelina Jolie. All of these very secular people, all these very wealthy, popular people have come to the realization in their own lives, it's not about another billion. It's not about another trophy. It's not about another Oscar. It's not about another pat on the back. None of that stuff satisfies. It is by giving to others that you make a life. And you know, the weird thing is today is that we have all of these research institutes, you know, doing all these studies on what makes people happy. Because America is where people should be happy, right? This is the land of liberty. This is where you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit. But nobody's happy. And they're doing all these research studies, and you know what they're discovering? They're all coming to the basic same conclusion. After spending time and months and doing research and all kinds of money to do them, they're coming to this basic thing. It's as people take the focus off themselves and turn their focus onto the needs of others and practically help somebody else in need, all of a sudden a person's happiness grows dramatically in proportion to that. Isn't that funny? All these researches, all these new, new studies, these people coming out saying, oh, we've discovered the secret to life. Really? Has it been hidden? Because this secret's been around an awful long time. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, the apostle Paul said in this, in all things I have shown you that by working hard, work hard so that you can help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said what? Do you believe that? Do you? Do you really believe that? Jesus said it. You know, isn't that the old saying? Jesus said it, I believe it, therefore, yeah. It's true. It is true. And you know, uh, maybe right now you're kind of in this place in your life where you feel kind of, kind of alone. You feel kind of isolated. You feel very joyless. You, you just feel, you feel like, what is going on? How come this isn't working? What's going Stop looking at yourself. Find somebody with a need. And start focusing on them and helping them and ultimately showing them the love of Jesus Christ. I guarantee it, it will change your life. It will change your life. There's an ancient Chinese proverb. See, so this stuff is not new. But there's an ancient Chinese proverb that says this. If you want to be happy for an hour, take a nap. I like that. 
If you want to be happy for a day, go fishing. How many want to go fishing? Yeah, I see those hands go up. If you want to be happy for a year, inherit a fortune. It doesn't last more than a year, by the way. It just doesn't work that way. But here's the key. But if you want happiness for a lifetime, what do you do? This is just true. I don't care if it comes from China. I don't care if it comes from the Middle East off the lips of Jesus or Angelina Jolie. God's truth is true no matter where you find it. And it's just true that by giving to the needs of others, you will discover a joyful, joyful life. So the lightning of God's grace has struck my life. I've been forgiven of my sins. I've been given the gift of eternal life. I could never earn it, never deserve it. And so the resounding thunder of my life should be a life of generosity. And to deepen that and to broaden that and to mature that, I need to understand God owns it all. I'm just the delivery guy. That if I will actually be obedient to the Lord, that I will experience a life of joy. And here's the last one. <laughs> you can't take your wealth with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take your wealth with you, but you can send it on ahead. This is the single greatest detriment to giving and leading a life of generosity. And it is the illusion that this world is our home. We sang a song just a little bit ago about how, how this, this world is not our home and how we're looking forward to being in God's presence. And, and, and we sing those words, but we don't live like that. We live like this is it. So we put all our eggs in these baskets and we build big and, and have what we want and we do all of this stuff as though this is it. But this isn't it. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, our citizenship is in, that's right. And it's from where we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter used a very similar tact when he was writing to people in persecution. Peter said this, no, 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 you don't understand. We are only pilgrims. We're only aliens on the earth. If you will, we are all on a visitor's visa. We're all simply on a visitor's visa. And one day it will expire. With this in mind. Go here with me. Go here with me. With this in mind, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are on visitors' visas right now uh, here on earth, uh, I want to share with you a story and see if this doesn't help connect. Suppose, suppose that your true residency is in England. How many like England? I've never been. I just chose a country. Okay. Suppose your true residency, the place that, that is your true place of, of uh, living, is in England and you were only visiting the United States of America for 90 days. If you were only coming over for 90 days, then what you would probably do is get a hotel room. And so you would get a hotel room knowing that you're only going to be here for a short term. This, is not your, this, this land is not your land. You actually live back in England. Let's continue forward a little bit with this illustration. Now let's say <clears throat> the rule is this. You cannot take anything back to England on your flight home. Nor can you ship anything back or carry money back with you. But while you're here in America, you can earn money and you can send deposits to your bank in England. Deal? We understand the, the, the uh, basic surroundings here. You're from England. You're visiting America for 90 days. You're holed up in a hotel room. Whatever you earn here, you cannot take back with you, but you can send ahead to your bank account. We good? All right, now let me ask you this question. Would you fill your hotel room 
with expensive furnishings and extravagant wall hangings? Would you tear out the bathroom and put in a bigger shower in a walk-in closet? This is sounding absurd, isn't it? Would you pull out the kitchenette and put in nice marble counters with expensive cabinets that have that nice quiet clothes feature? How many would do that? Well, thank you. He doesn't know enough yet. <laughs> None of us would do that. And yet, the reality is this. We are only in, an Amer in America for a very short time. We are all on visitors' visas, and one of these days it's going to expire, and everything you have built in this world will not go with you. You say, Pastor Bill, what about an inheritance? Shouldn't I leave my kids an inheritance? You know, the Bible talks about leaving your kids and your kids' kids' inheritances, but let me just say this. If you're not leaving an heritage of faith in God and of sacrifice towards other people's needs and of living a kingdom lifestyle, then don't give your kids an inheritance because it will only harm their lives. But if you were to actually give them a Christian work ethic, understanding that they're serving Jesus Christ and that we're only here for a season and they're living for the kingdom of God, I don't care where they land in the world, they'll succeed. So they don't need an inheritance. They need a heritage of living by faith. That's what they need. Jesus put it this way. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth or rust, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me see if I can kind of contextualize this a little bit. If you, if you have a financial planner, a good financial planner will say to you that when you go about making a money decision now, when you go about spending money, what you need to do is before you spend that money, you need to think about 30 years into the future, and you need to ask yourself in the future, how is that going to impact the future me? And if you live with this kind of delayed gratification here, over here, you will be so glad that you were patient that you salted away for a rainy day called retirement. What Jesus is saying is this. Before you make a money decision here, before you, you make this investment, before you do this renovation, before you buy this, before you do that, what you need to ask yourself is this. How will this decision impact 30 million years into your future? You see, your destination is decided by faith alone and Christ alone. If you do that, you, you know the Lord, you're going to go to heaven. But I want you to understand, your position in the kingdom and your possessions in the kingdom are determined by your living now. What you will have then is determined now. Jesus said those who give up houses and lands now will receive a hundredfold in the kingdom to come. Our works follow us, believers. It's not just about believing in Jesus. It's about living for Jesus now. And as a result of faith and obedience now, God commends that and will reward that in the life to come. And you will enjoy that forever. But if we continue to play this game now, spending it all, getting in debt, doing what I want, living in the day, without realizing that I'm impacting my eternity, we've got to wake up. We've got to wake up. If you keep it, you will lose it. If you give it, you will keep it forever. That's the simple lesson there.
the simple lesson there. The visa will expire. And then comes the Bema Seat judgment of Christ for the believer. Where not our destiny will be determined, that's already been determined in Jesus Christ. He has given us eternal life and we will spend forever with him. But at that moment, our works will be tested for their quality. And only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And there will be those who go into the kingdom smelling of smoke and barely having clothes left on their body, the Bible says. And there are others who will go in with a great reward and an opportunity to glorify the Lord. I don't know about you, but I need to be making better decisions today because 30 million years from now, I want to say, well done, Bill. Good job. Trusting the Lord, realizing the kingdom call, live like that. Okay, let's get um, down to the so what, the now what. Right now, you're a little numb. I know you are because I did this all week long, and I'm numb. I have to study this all week long. You only get it on Sunday mornings. Of course, you have to walk out of here with it too, which is good, because I have to walk all week with it. Now what? Well, let me just begin here. When it comes to the issue of giving in the Bible, I I think first and foremost, it's important to say this. We need to be prioritizing a life of generosity. Prioritizing a life of generosity. Uh, Very little will display better the reality of your own faith than how you deal with your money. God plays, places a huge premium on how we handle money. Why? Why does God care so much about my money? Well, first of all, it's not yours. But secondly, because there's nothing more tangible in life. And that really shows the reality of our faith is how we choose to manage it on his behalf. So we need to prioritize a life of generosity. And that begins with systematic giving. Systematically giving, this thing referred to as the tithe. A tithe simply means 10%, and that was designed to be given to the ministry of God for the maintenance of the work of God. Now, the tithe is a biblical concept. Some are sitting there saying, I thought we weren't on the tithe anymore. All I know is this. Abraham commenced it in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 20. His grandson Jacob continued it in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 22. Later, Moses codified it and commanded it in Leviticus 27 verse 30. Later on, Malachi confirmed it in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And later on, Jesus commended it in Matthew 23, 23. So if Abraham commenced it, Jacob continued it, Moses commanded it, Malachi confirmed it, Jesus commended it, who am I to cancel it? So all that to say this, this isn't even generous giving. This is expected. This is the low bar, guys. The expectation is is you will give back to the Lord 10%, merely acknowledging that he holds it all. Okay, now let's move on to the good part. Secondly, we should live lives of sensitive, generous giving. Sensitive because now we're asking God through the Holy Spirit to guide us to needs that we can meet uh, as the delivery people of God. This is where we can give gifts to others and meet their needs. And so what this means is that we are going to need to learn to live more simply so we can give more Yeah. And can I just say, if God can trust you, he'll give you more. If you start becoming that conduit, God will keep keep using this postal route. Because guess what? It's efficient. But if you start cutting it off and keeping it, he's not going to use that route anymore, and he's not going to give you what you need. Some of you are living in such debt right now, you don't know what to do with yourselves. Well, have you started obeying giving? But I don't have any money to give. Really, you do? You just choose not to at this point. (laughs) Thank you. Would you get that? Thank you. 
So learn to live more simply so that we can give more generously. And I'm just going to end with an opportunity. And then I'm going to give the band a chance to come back up and to end our time. Uh, two years ago, uh, we did uh, a financial plan here called Financial Peace University. Were any folks here who took that at that time? Yeah, a number of you did. Uh, right now, we're assessing need. Are there folks here that really feel like they need to get a handle on their money, get a handle on maybe some debt that's in their lives, and find a proactive way to deal with it that's biblical? Um, Dave Ramsey uh, runs this course called Financial Peace University. You see, normal is broke. His goal is that we would all be very weird, that we would actually have money and that we would then use it for God's purposes. So if, if this is something that you would be interested in, we're more than happy to host this course. It's 10 weeks long, and it's a commitment of $100 for the box. Wow. If you need help, we can help. I just want to know if there is desire here for this to be done. If there is, we are more than happy to host it, and it would happen here in the spring, the winter spring of the year. It will be done before summer. So if you're interested, I just want to ask you to grab one of these out of the chair back in front of you, pull it out, and write on it, you know, your name. Choose, write the service. We want to know which service wants it and which one needs it so we can offer them accordingly. And just write F-P-U-Y-E-S, F-P-U-Y-E-S. If you're interested, we want to help you. You know, there are days where I don't like what I do. Because throughout this week, I've been wrestling with so many things before the Lord about this. But Lord, but Lord, but Lord. And then I see the needs everywhere. And I'm living with conviction these days, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. And I don't have all the answers, but I know by the grace of God, I can do so much more. That's where I'm at in this. I don't know where you're at, but I hope that we can help you get to where you know God wants you to be. All right, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to have a couple of songs. And then we're going to invite some folks into membership today. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for talking to us as adults. Not just, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's true and beautiful. But there's many truths about the kingdom that go much further than that, much deeper than that, much more sacrificial than that. And today we had an adult conversation about money, about giving. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us right where we are each at and that you would direct us accordingly to please you in this matter. Father, help me and help all of us, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Would you stand with us? we sing